0: Daily Premier League news and views. This is Football Social Daily.
1: After almost twenty years, twenty-one trophies, fifteen different managers, and over two billion pounds worth of investment, Roman Abramovich has decided his race's run at Stamford Bridge. And he's put Chelsea Football Club up for sale. The Russian oligarch has owned the Blues since 2003, in which time he's seen monumental success in West London. But in light of recent developments outside of football, Abramovich has taken the decision to sell up and move on. Off the field, the reasoning will be debated fiercely, rightly and understandably so, but looking at this from a football perspective, just what does it mean for the future of Chelsea Football Club and the landscape of the Premier League hierarchy? We'll be hearing from a Chelsea fan on the developments of the last 24 hours at the bridge, as well as looking at a night on the field for the Blues in the FA Cup, where they edged out Luton Town to secure passage to the quarterfinals. Southampton joined them too after seeing the back of West Ham, who are now 42 years trophyless. And it's no real surprise that Liverpool are also through to the last day after they beat Norwich. Their city rivals Everton try their hand tonight against lowly Boreham Wood, the non-leaguers the lowest ranked side left in the competition. How will they fare against Lampard's Toffees? All of that to come on today's Football Social Daily, the only daily Premier League podcast out there. Hit subscribe now, and that way you'll never miss an episode again. I'm Nile, and joining me on the show today, Marley Anderson and Joel Tudor. Morning boys.
2: Morning, guys.
3: Morning, Joel, morning Nile, morning to every single person in the world.
1: <laughs> That's very kind of you, Marley. I was is, quite it? enjoying that. I've
3: turned over a new leaf, mate. Shut up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, before we start, I want to make a point that we do generally on Football Social Daily and stay distance from the goings on outside of the game, whether that be politically or socioeconomically. But as we said earlier this week, politics and general life are in the main intertwined with sport, whether you agree with it or not. It is heavily involved, whether directly or by proxy. Football and politics are linked, and the situation in Ukraine is no different. We all universally condemn Russia's actions in invading Ukraine. And we firmly stand by everyone else in offering our support for the Ukrainian people in their defence of their nation. But of course, as I'm sure you can appreciate, we aren't experts here on political tensions, conflicts or anything relating to those spheres and indeed the crisis in Ukraine. And so we'll be looking at this Abramovich story through a footballing lens as best we can. We barely qualify as experts on football, to be honest with you, but that's what we know. And so that's where we'll be focusing. So Roman Abramovich, after 19 years, has decided... He's had enough. He wants to sell Chelsea. Now, we can debate the reasons for that, as we've just said, long into the rest of the day. But from a footballing perspective, your initial thoughts, Marley, on the decision that Chelsea fans would have seen yesterday that their club is now on the market?
3: Yeah, it's... Um, it's. I don't know whether it's a shock or not, to be honest, because it's... It's big it, news
1: regardless, though, isn't it? It's massive yeah, news.
3: Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit of a shock because a lot of the time, people who are as rich as Roman Abramovich are insanely stubborn. Um, and there was no sort of you, you know he didn't i don't think he had to sell the club like he could have he could have held on to it and took sanctions from the government if that if that was the way this whole thing's going to work um but he's you know he's been proactive in, in selling it and i'm 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 still trying to form an opinion to be honest because i think there's so much that we don't know yet um and there's so much sort of race Left to be run in this in this thing, I think we've we've barely got out the blocks in the terms of this whole saga. Um, but you know, the first hurdle of that of that race is is this is, is selling Chelsea. Um, he wants a quick sale so he can avoid any any sanctions. Um, whether that happens or not, I don't know because if there's one thing I've learned from as a Newcastle fan over the past few years, it's that football club sales do not. Go through quickly. They they drag on and there's due diligence and there's consortiums linked and and then they go and then um, people realise the the costs and the profit. There's not that much profit really in in owning a football club. It's it's kind of a passion project or or you need to be prepared to spend an insane amount of money to to bring success if your club already hasn't uh, hasn't already had it. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I think we're we're right at the start of this and to. You know, I'm I'm a bit sceptical to say about Abramovich um, being this sort of hero of of Chelsea um, because of the the whole sort of uh, political aspect of his of his life. He's a very very private man, and that's very obvious for a reason why he's a private man. Because if you look at the friends he has, why wouldn't you be a private man? Why would you be a extravagant billionaire chucking your billions everywhere and firing money out of a money going on a big yacht and popping bottles of champagne and stuff? You wouldn't be like that if you've if you've got the friends that Roman Abramovich has. So it, the whole thing's starting to make a bit more sense. Um, he's he's trying to sell the club and and do a um, a charitable thing of of setting up the. Um, the charity for victims of the war, Um, he didn't say which part of which, which victims um, in the statement, which was a bit strange for me, Um, I think he just said all victims, which is kind of understandable, I thought, but people probably said, why is it, you know, is he, is he funding, (laughs) is he funding Russians that way, you know, Um, so yeah, it's all very, very murky, I don't really like talking about it too much in 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 political terms because i simply don't know enough um, exactly
1: it's hard to talk with any authority on the things going on outside of the game and so that's why i kind of made that sort of mini statement at the start of the podcast by saying you know listen we're not here to debate whether we agree with it or not um the political aspects of what's going on away from the game all we can really discuss with any authority is exactly how this affects Chelsea and the footballing landscape and you know you're right we've heard from Roman Abramovich you could count the amount of times that he's kind of given a statement or you know I don't think I've ever seen him give an interview but you can count them on one hand uh, you know the amount of times that he's kind of directly communicated with the Chelsea supporters and others involved in in the British media we'll hear from someone who supported Chelsea their whole life very very shortly Damien saint John will be joining us for his take on it all but away from that political lens Joel, and purely focusing on a football perspective How do fans of other clubs feel about the fact that Roman Abramovich has decided to sell up? You're a Manchester United fan. Now, without making this a a conversation about ownership, you would have watched Chelsea come up and be a direct threat to Manchester United. You beat them in the 2008 Champions League final under Mourinho and several other managers in the early to mid 2000s. They really became a force and started challenging um, Sir Alex Ferguson's iron grip on, on English football. Um, they've been there ever since. They've won multiple trophies since, you know, 21 to be precise, 15 different managers. So how are fans of Manchester United or City or Liverpool or Arsenal or any of the other top clubs in English football feeling about the fact that that Chelsea may well uh, have a change in direction soon?
2: Yeah, for me, it's such an interesting case because I think Marley touched on, you know, in, uh, these billionaires being insanely stubborn but they're also insanely powerful as well. And for a guy like Roman Abramovich to now be kind of boxed into a corner where his hand's pretty much been forced. I mean, in the last 19 years, Chelsea has been his passion project. I feel like the money's just become a by-product for him. And it's all been about creating a super powerful team that can rival all the biggest clubs in the world. And to be fair, he's been massively successful at it. But, you know, he's got... He's an an intelligent man, he's got intelligent people around him and he's preparing for all this uncertainty to come that I don't think he knows how long it's going to last for. And so, of course, it is in the best interest of both parties, really. But for me, it's the fact that, you know, they have sure, they have an incredible squad, they have so many talented players, they have a massive legacy that is left. But as we've seen with Arsenal and their American owners, Liverpool, Manchester United... The strategy and how well you do always, always comes from the top. How much money they're willing to spend, how much they're willing to invest. And like we've seen, you know, with United, Liverpool and Arsenal, they were all bought for around 500 million. And that was a good, what, 10, 15 years ago. And I think Stan Kroenke ended up buying the outstanding shares a few years ago for 500 million. So at least they had room to grow on whatever they've invested. With Chelsea, it's a £3 billion outlay, which... I'm not quite sure how much wiggle room you could have because, you know, as we've seen, Abramovich bought it for 190 million, and he's been able to grow them into the force that they are today. And we know his strategy has been not hanging on to managers for too long. Invests when is absolutely necessary. Um, you never felt that Chelsea would be too down for long if they were in a really bad moment. You know, when we've seen with when uh, Mourinho was on his way out in his first year, then they got Di Matteo and they always seem to be one step ahead constantly. And I think the aftermath of this, rather than concentrating on, you know, the reasons why he's done it, you know, they know more than we do, put it that way. They know exactly what's to come and that's the reason why it's happened. But for me, the aftermath is the most interesting part because he's built such a strategy and Chelsea fans and Chelsea players and the board have been so used to his way of working um, in terms of his way of investing that, now that, let's say, an American owner comes in, how much that'll change Chelsea as a football club is going to be ridiculous. Because as we've seen with many American owners, Roman Abramovich has been there to pretty much invest. He's like, he's been his toy. He likes to, he likes the challenge. He likes to be able to compete with the best. Whereas we've seen typically with American owners that they usually, they, they want a return and they're going to be able, they want to do it in the least financial outlay possible and gain the maximum rewards from it. So as a, if I was a Chelsea fan, I would be quite worried because I don't think they're ever going to have an owner like Abramovic, who's probably one of the most active owners in the Premier League in terms of... how. I don't think I've ever heard a bad word say about him on a football side, purely football side, from Chelsea fans because he does what's in the best interest of the club constantly. Whereas every other big club, apart from probably Sheikh Mansour maybe, everyone's got a problem with their owners or they have in previous years. And I think that's really telling. And if I was a Chelsea fan with all this uncertainty coming around, I mean, considering that a new owner or a consortium will have to spend around three billion they're going to want a return on their investment and I mean how much more can you grow from that unless football continues to grow as it's probably projected to but I mean it's uncertain times for them and I, if I were them I would be quite worried because they've been so used to this particular system and it's worked.
1: Okay we've heard the thoughts there of Joel and Marley what about those of a Chelsea fan? Joining us now on Football Social Daily is Blues supporter Damien St John. Damien how are you this morning? Devastated. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Abramovich has decided to sell Chelsea after almost 20 years. Multiple trophies, multiple managers, multiple brilliant memories as a Blues supporter. Obviously, this decision has been taken, we think, in light of the ongoing invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces. You say you're devastated. Is that how the majority of Chelsea fans feel about it as well? I think so. It, because if you look at the way that
4: Abramovich changed football in this country and probably globally you know wading in with billions to buy a football club and you know signing the likes of Juan Sebastian Veron, Damian Duff, Glenn Johnson, Didier Drogba. It was a real like smash and grab on football uh, and you know winning the Premier League in his second season as an owner um, having brought Jose really who, who who put himself on the map by beating Man United as a Porto manager and winning the Champions League. Um, Yeah, it was really like, I'm here and I mean business and I'm going to do it. Um, Abramovich being inspired by that great Champions League game between Manchester United and Real Madrid um, really shows you that he was a football owner at heart. Uh, And I say that in the past tense because it does seem inevitable that uh, he will sell the club. I think the Chelsea fans are looking for somebody who has that football passion. You know, we've only had really three owners in our history. Before Abramovich, it was Ken Bates who bought it for a pound off the the Mears family who set the club up back in 1905 so you know for for all the um the 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 nicknames and you bought the league and this that and the other we believe that we are still really fundamentally a football club at heart and not run purely for profit so it'll be interesting to see with all the names being banded around um who takes over next
1: yeah the statement that chelsea released suggested that Abramovich will be putting the club up for sale and there's obviously a lot of Uh, debt in the club or at least money that the club owes Abramovich and the suggestions have been around the statement that Abramovich is willing to write that off. Is there concern, though, that Chelsea might become slightly unstable following his departure? I don't mean that in terms of financial sense, but in terms of the stability that Abramovich has brought, you know you're going to be competing for trophies every season. You know you're going to have investment of the squad. There is a turnover of managers, but we've come to expect that from Chelsea. Are there any concerns there from the fan base that maybe that stability that you see at Stamford Bridge now will erode a little bit? It's it's undoubtedly the case. If, if you take
4: the likes of Manchester United, who had incredible stability with Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, Arsenal for large parts with Arsene Wenger, Uh, we have not had the same in a managerial sense, but our ownership has been incredibly stable. And having seen how um, both of those clubs have, their fortunes have changed during these sort of uh, ongoing periods of instability. uh, I I think it it will happen, but you know, we've completed football um, and that's a great place to be. So I don't think fans are... Whatever comes, comes. You know, like I say, Ken Bates bought us for a pound. It doesn't get much more, unless you're Derby County uh, or Bolton, it doesn't get much more uncomfortable as a football fan than to find that you're worth, you know, the, the sum total of 100 pennies. So I think that instability is bound to happen. New owners are going to want to run it their own way. There is talk of... Um, potentially moving grounds, which uh, as a a Chelsea pitch owner shareholder, um, you know, we own the freehold to the stadium. So should a new owner wish to do that, um, they couldn't call their new football club Chelsea FC. I mean, they they could call it London FC, which would upset pretty much every other football club in London. Blues FC, I don't know. So it's going to be interesting because in that sense, it's hard to look at where the investment will come. Again, Abramovich bought us for £190 million and wants to sell for $3 billion, how could you possibly, if you were buying the club, it's already run very well financially. Yes, Abramovich has thrown pots and pots of money into it. Um, having worked for millionaires before, um, that is what they tend to do, knowing that they can recoup any losses when they come to sell. So, yes, the, the financial instability might be there. Um, as long as it's not the Glazers, we don't mind.
1: I think using Manchester United as an example is an interesting one because you mentioned the stability of Sir Alex Ferguson. He left Manchester United when they'd just won the Premier League. But everyone could see that squad was probably not quite there in order to go on and do it again and again and again. Abramovich has decided he's going to sell the club, but it's not like whoever does come and buy the club Not that there's too many people who can afford a club at the tune of £3 billion, by the way. But still, whoever does eventually come in, if that is to be the case, um, they're not taking on a a squad full of of has-beens. They're taking on a squad with a top manager and great players. So in terms of the actual sale of the club and the assets that you have, um, he says himself in the statement that he he won't be rushing through a sale. uh, Due processes will be followed. Does that mean that there could potentially be a lack of investment from Abramovich in the near future during the time that he does look for a buyer? Because if he's true to his word and he he doesn't rush it through, then this could take anywhere between, you know, maybe six months to two years to even beyond that.
4: Yeah, you're right. And he he may not find a buyer. If I was a shrewd billionaire, which, uh, by the way, I'm not. Um, But if I was, I'd be going, hang on, mate, you need to sell very quickly by the looks of things. Therefore, I'm going to give you an offer that's favourable for me to take the club off your hands. So Abramovich might want three. Um, If everyone offers two and he has to sell, what's he going to do? And then what does that do for the future of the club? Um, My understanding is that football clubs tend to bring in a lot of money, but they spend quite a lot of money too. So owning a football club is is akin to owning a, a super yacht. If you've got money that you can just afford to chuck on the fire over your breakfast every day and not blink, then by all means invest in a football club. Um, I, I go back to the point that I'm not sure where the additional growth is for Chelsea. Have it, having won everything you can in world football and the valuation being $3 billion, um, where do you go next? You look at the, the PSG model with, you know, the, the French Galacticos going on over there. We're probably not going to do that. Um, and even if we did you know there's still no guarantee that PSG would win the Champions League year after year after year so I think when you buy Chelsea you are buying the global brand and it's your job to go how do we squeeze more money out of that global brand
3: yeah I think you touched on on the 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 golden point for me Damien on this one because I'm I'm looking at this and and saying like three billion is the asking price but Chelsea haven't got much room to grow in that 3 billion when when Abramovich bought them for 200 million you know back in 2003 was it you know they they were a diamond in the rough type of thing they were um they needed a lot of work they needed a lot of investment and you need to the the, the journey was sort of set out in front of them but anyone buying Chelsea now is buying a finished article there is no room for improvement they've already won the Champions League in the last 10 years they won it last year and they won it in 2012 or 2013 whichever whichever year it was i forget um they've already won the premier league um in 2017 they're already in title races they've already got 100 hundreds of million pounds worth in the squad so the, i i just think that the type of owner that attracts on such short notice is somebody who wants to sit and find money that they can bring to themselves they're not they're not in it for the footballing... um sort of journey because it's already been completed by Abramovich and nothing Chelsea Chelsea can't do anything that they haven't done in the in the previous 10 years so it's it's a really strange sort of choice people have got
4: if you wanted to add the Chelsea brand to your business portfolio back in 2003 people would have gone what <laughs> yeah. but you you do it now and it actually does it add value to your other assets by bringing that you know showbiz celebrity world class football brand to your business stable does that elevate and uh, add value to your other assets
3: yeah that's that's it. yeah you've got to look at it alternatively now aren't you? it's not just football it's not just can I make money it's it's uh, but yeah it's a short deadline that's that's what I'd worry me
1: and it, it leads us up to the uncomfortable question and the uncomfortable term of sports washing so I mean we talk about Manchester City's ownership Uh, Newcastle's ownership and some of the um, situations uh, attributed to those two respective owners. Um, Obviously with what we're seeing uh, away from football in the political scene at the moment um, there's a lot of talk about uh, Abramovich's involvement in this Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine we won't go too deep into that but you know, there are naturally some people, Damien, that suggest that Abramovich is kind of trying to wash his hands and get rid uh, at the moment of Chelsea because of things going on on the outside. And although we don't know too much about that and it's hard for us to comment, I think that no doubt that does play a part.
4: Well, as a Chelsea fan, so um, I went to my first game in 1984, which means uh, as a 40 something man, um, you know, Abramovich has been the owner of my football club for exactly half my life, which feels staggering. It seems to have gone by uh, literally in the blink of an eye. Um, And over that period, you you naturally develop an affection for somebody that is bringing constant success to your club. Uh, And then you have the political situation and you are faced with an uncomfortable truth that somebody is friends with somebody who is doing something atrocious in the world. Um, And everything that comes with that should... Should happen. You absolutely cannot stand in the way of what what needs to happen in a, a political sense and in a, a sanction sense. And that does leave you uh, slightly uncomfortable as a Chelsea fan because you know what everyone else will say. I don't think there'll be too many people outside of uh, Stamford Bridge thinking that um, you know Chelsea are not somehow involved or or connected to it. And I think people are always going to want to, to join the dots. And due process will will bring everything out in the wash. But. Uh, yeah, I think it's the right time to sell. If you if you look at his statements um, on face value, to do it to protect the fans, to protect the club, the foundation, the supporters. You know, gl- Chelsea is a global brand with a lot of people that work for it, and a lot of people make money off off the back of it. So there is a a, a right to protect people in in that sense. Um, th- and and you know, I haven't met somebody with with lots and lots of money who hasn't. Uh, rub shoulders with people with power and influence it it does it does happen we can't pretend that it's not it's not part of the, the real world um you know again he's he's sort of involved in politics for a bit and got out um doesn't st- you know it it's it, it's very hard to read because he's a very private individual but i think it's the, i think it's the right time to sell i think it's the right time to move on and i think chelsea football club will uh St- still be here. I can't. <laughs> that that. Of course, that's the big worry, isn't it? You know, could the club just disappear? I don't think that will happen.
1: No, I, I think I'm with you. I think Chelsea would definitely be um, be around. I don't think there's any doubt of that. Um, so, just finally. Damien, how significant could this be for English football moving forward and Chelsea's position within that? We talk about the top six or the top four or the big four, whatever you want to call them colloquially. Um, We always put Chelsea in the top bracket of the biggest clubs in England, if not in Europe. You are European champions. You're a massive global brand uh, in the footballing world. Are there any questions over Chelsea's significance within that that pyramid and that structure of power in the English game? I think that will be answered when we we have a new owner who who
4: won't want to go backwards. Um, They won't want to be less competitive. They won't want to be less of a global force. And, uh, you know, we've won the Champions League twice. Neither time we were favourites to do it. You know, beating Bayern Munich, on penalties beating manchester city who i had down to to beat us in the final um you know we we constantly surprise people with with how we perform you know despite not being a, a team of dominance for for 20 complete years um i think you know a new owner will come in and want to keep pushing the club forward but you know again as you've as you've seen it's not easy um newcastle the richest uh, club in the world on the brink of Relegation, and they've had you know a, they've had a ter- <laughs> uh, they've had oh oh um, they've had a terrible time of it. There, there are no guarantees in football, other than football clubs cost a lot of money. Owners know that, um, and look, I think we have to be honest as as Chelsea fans. Um, you know, we are carefree wherever we may be. If that means the club did disappear and we end up starting again from scratch in the Isthmian League, then so what? You know, it's a it's a fan club. First and foremost,
1: um, whether the money's there or not, we will always be Chelsea. Damo, it's been brilliant to hear from you, mate. Great to get the insight from a Chelsea supporter and their views on the decision that Abramovich has taken to sell the club. Before you go, though, why not tell us what you've got going on in your life at the moment? I know that the, the Champ pod, part of the um, Sports Social Podcast Network, Wrestling with the champs is going pretty well for you. It is, yes.
4: Thank you for a, a quick plug. I write and produce and star in a, a scripted wrestling comedy called Wrestling with the Champ. If you imagine Alan Partridge is... In a wrestling ring, um, you, won't, you won't go too far. We are at the end of season three now, pretty much a couple of episodes to go. Uh, if you grew up watching wrestling in the 80s and 90s and you like to enjoy it and laugh at it in equal measure, then Resting with the Champ is the podcast for you.
1: I actually know the champ, and any excuse to laugh at him <laughs> is a good one. So make sure you go and check that out. It's part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You can find us at the website, sport-social.co.uk. Just click the podcast tab, and you can find it there, as well as on all of your usual podcast platforms. Damo, it's been a pleasure. Great to speak to you, mate, and take care.
0: Thank you very much. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport social.co.uk.
1: Welcome back to Football Social Daily. This is your daily Premier League podcast. Of course, it's a huge day in terms of Premier League ownership with Roman Abramovich announcing. He's put Chelsea up for sale and that statement from the club dropped only a couple of hours before kickoff in their FA Cup tie last night. It came at Kenilworth Road. The championship side made it really difficult for Chelsea. Whether some of the atmosphere amongst the Chelsea fan base on the road, travelling to support their team in Luton and just kind of the general vibe around the club were affected by that statement. Who knows? But in the end, they made hard work of it, but they managed to get the job done. They beat the championship side 3-2. We said yesterday, Marley, that it wouldn't be easy, and it certainly wasn't. Luton made it tough for Chelsea. The quality shone through in the end from the Blues, but I guess you could argue that all of the furor surrounding Chelsea in the hours leading up to kick-off maybe had a bit of an impact.
3: Yeah, maybe um, the the sort of the, the sort of the the storm of everything um, amounted to what we've seen in, in the first half. I thought. Um, they dropped the, the the Abramovich statement five minutes before the team sheet um, last night. So it's uh, roughly about six o'clock, something like that. Um, then the team sheet came out and it was a, a mishmash of players you forgot played for Chelsea plus Lukaku and uh, and Werner. Uh, Kennedy came in from out the cold. God knows where, where, where he's been for the last few I think he's been out in Brazil, back in, back in Brazil. Came on London to Newcastle, looked a decent player a few years back. Um, But yeah, I didn't even know he still played for Chelsea, to be honest. Um, Loftus-Cheek at centre-back was was strange. Hudson-Odoi played sort of right-back. Malang Saar, so it was kind of like a... Saar is dreadful, by the way. (laughs) He didn't look great, to be fair. He did did struggle a bit. Um, I
1: saw him having a go at Jorginho at one point during the game, where basically he was showing for a pass inside to Jorginho, but Jorginho never came to collect the ball at feet. And so he had to turn around and go back to his goalkeeper, Kepa. And Malang Sarr was going absolutely ballistic at Jorginho, as as if to say, come and get the ball off me. Um, And Jorginho just kind of looked over his shoulder and and ran back off into midfield, It was almost as if not to notice (laughs) it. And then about five minutes later, he got his legs in a a tangle, snapped his own ankles, fell over and nearly let Luton in um, late on in the game. So I was just thinking, this is a guy who, for me, isn't isn't quite to Chelsea quality, but they've got a squad, haven't they, Chelsea?
3: So it's understandable why Tuchel's picked different players. Yeah, yeah. I did think that that lineup um specifically towards the the back of the lineup the defense and stuff um I thought that um it sort of said to me that they didn't realize how good Luton were like Luton is, we said in yesterday's podcast Luton is sixth in the championship they could conceivably be in the Premier League next year if everything goes well for them like if you think of Luton you think they're in like the sort of stature of the club, if you look at it from, you don't really know much about them. You think the bottom end of the championship or League One, but they're they're a lot better than the than the sum of their parts. And they, I think they proved that last night. Um, the the header from the corner was superb. Um, the defending for for the second goal was absolutely atrocious um, for Luton's second goal, but the lads finished it brilliantly. Um, you know, slotted it past the goalkeeper as if he was in the park at you know with his mates at the weekend. Um, and, yeah, they, they give Chelsea a bit of a bloody, a bloody nose as well. And, you know, losing the goalkeeper after 20-odd minutes with, with an Achilles problem was was a big uh, issue for them. this 19-year-old kid who's never played, uh, I think it was his debut or certainly FA Cup debut for, for Luton, um, came on and, and did pretty well, to be fair. And made a good save from Saul on a, on a one-on-one. Um, but, yeah, it's you know, Luton sort of... We're going to run out of steam at some point. It was just a case of whether they could hang on enough. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately for them, they couldn't. But fair play to Chelsea for sticking in and uh, using their £150 million strike force to get them out of the mire a little bit.
1: Yeah, they certainly did need to call on the assets of Lukaku and Timo Werner, both of whom scored. I thought it was quite funny that Timo Werner, when he uh, tucked home, a really smart finish, by the way, it was a long ball over the top from Loftus-Cheek. He took it nicely as it looped over the defender and and then side-footed it into the back of the net past the on onrushing goalkeeper good finish from Werner thought it was funny that the first thing he did though was look over at the assistant to see if the offside flag was up
3: <laughs> but it wasn't he scored that's what he does mate he wakes up in the morning and looks over to his left and right and see if there's anyone flagged, flagged <laughs> offside because that guy was born offside well
1: not only did he score but he also provided Lukaku with an assist two goal scorers for Chelsea who really needed to find the back of the net Joel I think that was Werner's first goal since the third round where they beat Chesterfield a non-league side and Lukaku we know his struggles in front of goal recently so that will be a boost for those two players and Thomas Tuchel regardless of the fact it was against Luton
2: yeah I think with strikers it's always just about confidence isn't it regardless of who it's against it could be against the flipping under 16 reserves or something that's on the putting it in the back of the net and they're getting the tally up again I feel like strikers sometimes forget that the uh, have the ability to score. You know, for example, Lukaku, he's a 30 goal a season striker in um, Serie A So I think these goals for them, especially especially Timo Werner, because if everyone remembers him in Bundesliga, I mean everything he touched turned to goals when he was at Leipzig, and then suddenly at Chelsea, it just hasn't really switched for him. But he's still a super young guy, and he's still got like bags of uh, potential to still realise. So I think it'll be good for both of them. But obviously, when it gets to the bigger games, like, for example, Lukaku is is renowned not to turn up in these bigger games. And that's been a big flaw of his career, I would say. Um, But yeah, he just needs to get back on the sheet and start winning the Chelsea fans over again because... After those interviews he did with the uh, Italian media, it still feels to me as though he's on his way out and I still think he will leave at the end of the season. Um, but I think he just needs to realise his form again. Especially, well, both of them, to be honest, and like Marley said, it's not bad bringing on £150 million worth of assets onto the pitch against Little Luton to seal your uh, FA Cup next round slot. So yeah, it's a good, good um, morale booster for both of them.
1: Chelsea through to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup after beating championship side Luton by three goals to two at Kenilworth Road. We said on yesterday's podcast, if you're watching on the telly, get a good look at Kenilworth Road because it is a unique place. Um, Hopefully some of you picked up some of the features of the ground that we were talking about on yesterday's show. Uh, Joining the Blues in the quarterfinals of the Cup this season are Southampton. They beat West Ham United 2-1 yesterday at St Mary's. We said on the podcast yesterday, Joel, that West Ham had a chance to go and win something this season. But they've blown it. They've blown their opportunity, and that now means it's 42 years trophyless for West Ham United. I've said a few times the last couple of years, West Ham have needed to strike while the iron's hot, and whether that's getting into the top four and whether that's considered a success or not is another question. But tangible success is measured in trophies, not whether you finished fourth or not for me. Um, a great chance for West Ham with the side they've got to go on and, and be successful and win some silverware. They haven't been able to capitalize. They should really, with the squad that they've got, have beaten Southampton, but they couldn't do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, to be fair, though, they gave they, they, they fielded a near um, they fielded a near fully strong side when they had your and know, Jarrod Bowen, Antonio Lanzini. Well, Lanzini's typically in and out, but Declan Rice and Suchek were in the midfield. Kurzuma. Um, they had, but well, compared to Southampton, they were, I'd say, more more equipped to try and win the tie. Southampton seemed to feel a, a slightly more. Uh, Weaker side, and then obviously they brought on a couple of reinforcements. But, like you say, and I think we mentioned it in a few podcasts ago, this is a season where West Ham fans will be looking back and thinking if we didn't get something in that 2021 2022 season where everything seemed to be clicking for us, we had probably the best side we've had in years, and we still didn't win anything or get near to winning anything. And they're going to look back with such regret because especially in the FA Cup, I mean, Southampton, to be fair, they are in great form at the moment. I know, Niall, you're very uh, unhappy about that scenario. but I'm got...
1: fuming at West Ham, Joel. I'm absolutely <laughs> furious. But how do you, how be... do you feel about it?
2: If, if Southampton win an FA Cup, how would you feel about it?
3: Uh, I would, oh, he'll have I'd... nothing to talk about. All he talks about <laughs> is to- is uh, is Portsmouth winning the FA Cup that time. So if Southampton go and do it. He'll
2: have a vacancy for host. <laughs>
1: Southampton had a a trophy parade for uh, their 1976 FA Cup win. They had a 40-year trophy parade around the city of Southampton because it's been 40 years. as like a celebration. That's sad, isn't it? Don't you think? (laughs) Seriously. It's been 42 years since West Ham. So I guess these two sides are in the the same boat. Um, In all fairness, you know, we joke about Southampton and yeah, I would be gutted if they won the FA Cup. I'm not going to sit here and, and say that that wouldn't be the case. I absolutely would be, but... Haas and has drawn some praise. He made nine changes last night, as Joel says. West Ham had a strong side out, um, Marley, but but Southampton made nine changes and they all played very, very well. We talk about him drawing praise and and him being uh, lauded as a good manager. Does he deserve praise the most or do the hierarchy at St. Mary's deserve the praise for sticking by him after those two 9-0 drubbins, which would easily have seen the back of many a manager in the Premier League in years gone by?
3: Uh, I think he, I think he's one of the most underrated managers in the Premier League, if I'm honest. Um, and Hootle, I think, even though yeah, yeah, you know the the two nine nils are, are obviously huge sort of footnotes in and what he what he may well be remembered for. But I think before Southampton, before he came in, Southampton were were um, they didn't really have much of an identity. They didn't really have a, a solid plan. Um, I always like I, I like watching Southampton play because they they do play decent stuff. They keep it on the ground. They press high. They they try and use uh use their their play. They always play two up front, which is which is brave in today's game. Um, with the uh, the sort of trend thing of being like a lone striker and wingers and attacking midfielders running off him. So. Um, I think he's done really well. I remember at the start of this season, um, I was really worried about Southampton because the, the business they did in the summer was, was very, very brave. Um, they got rid of Danny Ings for yeah for a decent price, but still, he's a 20-goal-a-season striker if he stays fit. Um, and as he proved a couple of years ago when he got 22 in a share of the Golden Boot playing for Southampton. So he, they sold him, they sold Bertrand, um, they sold Yannick Vestergaard, and they replaced him with with pretty un unproven players. Um, Armando Breuer, No one no one had really seen anything of of Armando Breuer in terms of top level like elite sort of you know Premier League and 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 any loan moves or anything like that. You know he'd been playing mostly reserve and twenty three stuff for Chelsea. Um, Tino Livramento, the same. Um, you know he came out with Chelsea as. Uh, as youth team player of the year, and they signed him and uh, allowed, you know, used him as the the replacement for Bertrand at fullback, and moved Kyle Walker Peters over to left back for most most of the season. So that was another massive uh, massive risk, but the coaching and the the scouting has been has been perfect. It's been fantastic. You know, Livermorento has probably been one of the best right backs in the league. Breyer has been, I think he's got, uh, he had six goals uh, in the Premier League before the yeah. weekend. He won't be staying uh, at
1: Southampton though, will really. he? Surely,
3: surely Chelsea will be looking at this no, and thinking, prob- probably with
1: probably Lukaku playing the way he's playing, then we'll, we'll be bringing him back, giving him a go.
3: Yeah, probably, he probably will be. But, you know, Southampton have still got what they wanted out of him, which is a good uh, a good season. And, you know, if if he does go anywhere, if, if Chelsea's for some reason turned around and say, you know what, actually, yeah, you can go. Um then South why wouldn't Southampton be at the front of that queue? Um, they've made him feel welcome. He's you know, he's, he's he's played every game pretty much for them this season or, or most games. He's scored goals, he's comfortable there clearly, he fits the style of play. He scored a ridiculous goal last night where he skinned half of West Ham's defence and slotted it in the corner. Um he scored against big teams, um in I think he scored was it against Liverpool or Man City, he scored against earlier in the season. Um, took that really well. Um, I think he's a quality player, and it's it's testament to to how Southampton did that. They played, they made so many changes last night, and I looked at the team lineup and thought West Ham should walk this because Southampton are playing Shane Long up front, and you know the the the, the it was clearly a second team from Southampton, but they still got it done. Uh, Remain Perrod coming up with a goal from from left back is. Um, it's something that you can. You only sort of do that when you're confident around the club and the the feeling's really good. And you look at Southampton now. They're the tenth in the league, uh, and they're in the the quarterfinals of the FA Cup, which is magnificent for a club like Southampton who who made so many changes in the summer.
1: Enough waxing irical about them lot down the M27. Let's move on (laughs) and talk about Liverpool instead. Easy work for them. They beat Norwich 2-1 last night. We knew this was going to be a Liverpool win, Joel, and that's not to disrespect Norwich. It's just they're not having a good season. They always seem to come up against Liverpool and they never, ever seem to beat them. Um, Although they made a better fist of it this time. It was 2-1 rather than the usual three or four that they get stuck past and when they do face the Reds um, another trophy in Liverpool's sights they show no sign of slowing down at the moment and with the Premier League title race heating up with the Manchester derby this weekend and Liverpool versus Man City to come in April it's shaping up to be a really exciting season if you're a Liverpool fan
2: yeah unfortunately um, it was a I think with this game it was the Ryan on the wall before the game had even begun. especially at Anfield I think is you're basically one goal down, aren't you? Especially for a team like Norwich when you're coming up against them. Despite the fact that, you know, Liverpool did feel they're pretty weak inside, they didn't have any of their usual front three apart from Diogo Jota, who uh, came off shortly into the second half. But um, I just wanted to give a mention to Lucas Rupp. His goal was quality in that second half and it looked like there might be a fight back until... Jurgen Klopp brought on Sadio Mane and Luis Diaz just to make sure that that wouldn't be the case. Um, And this is the difficulty teams have, don't they, when they're playing against these top sides. It's the fact that regardless of where the game is in terms of, you know, they could be winning, they could be losing or drawing... They've got such quality on the bench to bring them back into the game that it's always going to end up inevitably turning. So it was a routine win for Liverpool. They've still got <clears throat> they've still got a long way to go. I mean, uh, Klopp still hasn't been to a FA Cup final yet in his five six years at Liverpool, um, and it's not an easy trophy to win. It's the furthest they've got, when... isn't it?
3: Under under Klopp, it's the first time. It's in, the furthest, yeah, it's the first time in seven years they've been to the uh, they've been through. The fifth round, so it's uh, wow. yeah, it's yeah. This is what I mean. So it's, now, really.
2: everyone, every, this is what I mean. You know, when Manchester City or Liverpool, when they're all in the four competitions at this stage, the media always runs away with the quadruple is on, treble is on. It's not easy to win all these trophies. Like everyone, I loved uh, Thomas Tuchel's quote the other day, where a reporter said to him you know, you've got two games in hand, Like you you probably end up being four or five points behind Liverpool. And he said, you guys always just count up the points. You have to play the games first. And that's the case with this. It's not a given that Liverpool are just going to breeze towards the final because everything and anything can happen in these cup tournaments. Guardiola's side has done it many times where every single year they're in the quadruple talk and it never, ever happens. They've not even done the double in terms of the real double. So... There's there's a long way to go in terms of giving any sort of quadruple talk. They could run away with it all they want. But I mean, there's only one real team who can do the treble and that's Manchester United.
3: (laughs) Wow.
1: I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. Well, let's switch from one side of Stanley Park to the other and talk about Everton. Final part of today's Football Social Daily. They take on Boreham Wood, the non-leaguers. We'll do that after this. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. More than 100 brilliant sporting podcasts for you to get your ears around. All you need to do is visit the website sport-social.co.uk and click the podcast tab to check out those. FA Cup action tonight, though. One game taking place involving a Premier League side, and that Premier League team is Everton. Struggling at the bottom of the table at the moment in the top flight, but it's attentions that turn to the FA Cup now. As this evening, they welcome Boreham Wood, the non-league side from North London. Uh, What type of a team do you think Lampard's going to pick, Marley, against the lowest ranked side left in the competition? They can pick a second string squad and they're Everton. They should be beating Borehamwood, But the side from North London have had a really good run in the competition. They're the last non-league side left. They could be only the second team uh, since Lincoln City to reach the quarterfinals as a non-league team. Loads going for them. Everton have got everything to lose, really. It's an interesting cup clash, this one.
3: Yeah, I think you, you touched on it there when you say Everton have got anything to uh, everything to lose because this is a no-win situation for them, really. Um, if they win four or five nil uh, against Boreham Wood, everyone says well done. That's exactly what should have happened. If you lose, you know, pff, Jesus, the, the the meltdown would be would be insane. It'd be one of the biggest shocks in in FA Cup history, if not the biggest. Um, but yeah in in terms of team um that Lampard's gonna put out, I don't know what he's gonna put out, but he need what he needs to do is just go as strong as possible because you know they've lost uh to the last two games to Southampton and Man City um they need they need momentum like they are well in this relegation battle um if they didn't know it already, like breaking news you're in a relegation battle lads because Newcastle winning the weekend, Burnley picking up points. It's very very tight down there. Um, Leeds getting a new manager, you got to be a bit wary of that in case in case they start to improve. Um, so yeah, for me they have to go as strong as possible. You you do nothing if you if you get a result with a with a, um, a a second string team and you know players like Chenk Tosun comes in and and Jared Branthwaite and the reserve goalkeeper. If you play them people and they win. Fine, but then you go to Tottenham on Monday night, and then players aren't playing, so they've got you. You're going backwards. You you've got to, you've got to play Richarlison. You've got to play Calvert Lewin if he's fit. You've got to play Townsend, uh, Van der Beek, de- Delhi Alley, Get them all. Uh, It's winning
1: is a habit, isn't it? It's the old cliche. Winning is a
3: habit, and Everton know that they have to win,
1: not only for dignity but for morale. Because in this relegation fight, Marley, if they lose to Boreham Wood, like you say, the meltdown would be, you know, indescribable. It'd be off the scale, yeah. And. In terms of the confidence and the, the, the sort of momentum they need to be successful in their fight to stay up in the Premier League this season, they can't be affording to lose games like this. So even yeah. if they win 1-0, people will be going, oh, well, they should have scored more goals than that. So I, I don't think Lampard's got any choice than to pick a, a strong team.
3: Yeah, he, he absolutely has to. Um, the the thing, like, if you, if you beat Warren Wood, you know, great. But then you go to Tottenham on a Monday, on Monday night, um, Tottenham have been embarrassed how many times in the last two weeks? You know, Burnley, then Middlesbrough. Um, you know, they're, they're stuttering. So that's not an unwinnable game at all, but it does become more unwinnable if you lose to Boreham Wood at home in the, you know, three days before it, so or five, four days before it. So, yeah, um, they, they absolutely have to play the strongest team. They, it's good as well for them that they're at home um, because sometimes like, if you were... Going to and Wood on a on a Thursday night, you know you'd be worried about the you know the the, the pitch and the ground, like turning turning an ankle on a on a pitch which has been you know managed by a guy who's an accountant from nine to five and comes and does a bit of work on the on the pitch when he when he can sort of thing. Um, so you know you're at Goodison, you've got the crowd behind you, you've you've got uh, assurances of the playing surface and stuff. You should be able to play your type of football. And you should get it done pretty easily. And then you can go into the game against Tottenham on Monday night with a bit of confidence. They go into it with another you know, another terrible result coming off the back of. Um, so their confidence will be down. And if your tails are up and their tails are down, then that gives you a massive chance to get three points in the fight against relegation. Because Everton's next three games are Spurs, Wolves, Newcastle, and then they got Watford. So if you lose three of them, you know stuff starts to get really, really serious. Have we seen anything from Everton recently, Joel,
1: to suggest that they'll survive this season? Now, they got beat by Man City, as Marley says, but a lot of teams get beat by Man City, and I don't think that's any real surprise. I think Everton could be in the top four race and they'd still probably be beaten by Manchester City. Losing to Southampton, who are in good form, obviously a damaging blow. But have we seen enough from Everton lately to suggest they'll survive this season? Have we needed to? Is it more the case if the other teams around them aren't quite up to it that means Everton will be okay? What's your take?
2: Um, Well, if you just look at it objectively, I mean, they've got three games in hand on Brentford. And I know I just mentioned about not counting the points up with what Tuchel said, but they are best equipped to be able to get out of that situation pretty quickly. I mean, one win literally takes them straight up to 14th again and suddenly the the pressure's off them. But you would think that they have the best equipped chance just purely with the fact that the quality they've got in the side is way better than any of the teams around them, like bar none. The only issue is that, for example, Calvin uh, Calvert-Lewin hasn't been the tall opposite of the player he was last season. Obviously, he's had a lot of injuries, but even still, when he's come back, he's still not really got into form. Um, and obviously, he's got a new manager. They've pretty much got a whole new midfield. So it's going to take a lot of time to adapt to what Lampard's looking for. And he's not coming to the job in a pretty you know, rosy circumstance. It's, it's a very high-pressured circumstance now, which could altered the way in which Everton are looking to go forward because obviously they've got the new stadium plans coming up and who knows if that will change things if they were to go down. But I don't think they're in danger per se just because they have so many games in hand and they have so many teams above them. For example, for me... Uh Brentford and Leeds are the ones who are most at risk of getting overturned by Burnley just because they're in such poor form. And I think they've just not got the, especially Brentford. For me, I think Brentford will go down. But um, in recent weeks, you know, Everton have just not, they've just come up against sides who have just been way better equipped than they have, uh, especially, you know, when they've played against Newcastle. Newcastle have been with Eddie Howe now for a good, what, two, three months it's never going to be a quick turnaround with Everton and Lampard. So it's going to take him time, but I wouldn't have any worries if I was Everton just because I just feel as though they have a squad where when it comes to the, the business end of the season, when it comes to the last eight games, then I think they're just, they have the, the tools required to get them out of the, the danger.
1: Interesting that you say you think Brentford will get sucked into it. I still think there's loads left to go in this relegation fight. I think we could see the places... Um, flip and flop between different sides. Um, it, it's strange how it works. You know, Newcastle looked like they were. Absolutely flying and completely clear of it, but you know it's not quite the case just yet. Uh, Burnley looked like they were going to soar up the table and get out of it, but they lost to Leicester on Tuesday, so now they're still in trouble. Um, Norwich and Watford have certainly kind of uh, lost momentum, but there's still some huge games to go uh, involving Norwich and Watford between now and the end of the season, where teams could be taking points off of each other. Leeds have got a new manager now, Jesse Marsh, as Marley says, so. I just think that this this relegation fight could be really, really exciting. Um, I think that, as we said at the start of the season, Marley, this Premier League campaign could be one of the best we've seen for ages. We said that there were potentially four teams in a title race, City, Liverpool, United and Chelsea. Now, it hasn't quite worked out like that. And it looked like uh, City were completely going to run away with it. But now that lead has been scaled back. The race for the top four, we said that, You know, teams are going to be fighting for that. Leicester might be involved. They haven't been, but West Ham have been and Wolves have come up. And now this relegation fight where we're looking at teams like Everton and Leeds uh, and Newcastle, three huge Premier League clubs that could be um, dragged into the championship next season if things transpire that way. So in terms of where we looked at at the start of the season and said this could be a good campaign, after having a real high uh, at the start of the season with all those teams competing, as I say, particularly at the top end of the table... Then we had a bit of a dip in the middle and now we're kind of climbing up to a peak again. It could be a really interesting crescendo to the end of the season. So I think it's been exciting so far.
3: Yeah, it has. Um, from from a neutral uh, perspective, if you were watching this, then there's always something to look at. Um, you know, Man City looked like they they were walking the title and it was kind of over about six weeks ago. But now that's uh, a lot tighter than it was. There's only three points separating them when all the games are, uh, are level, Um and then you've got the relegation fight, which is going everywhere, and you know uh, up and downs everywhere. Norwich having a revival under Dean Smith, even um, Brentford dropping like a stone. Newcastle getting the takeover and going going higher um, and and improving massively and spending a bit of money for for the first time in a while. So yeah, there's there's always something there, and I think that's just testament to why the Premier League is the best in the world. Um, it's not even close for me um, in terms of of how it's uh, how it's perceived on the world stage, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been a, a really good season. I'm I'm just hoping that Newcastle can uh, can watch this relegation fight from from the the safety of soft thirteenth of um, rather than get get f- scrapped into it because I'm not sure I've got the energy for it after uh, after the protracted um, you know drawn out negotiations over the sale of the club and stuff, but. Hopefully we'll start with him cheering on from the Leeds <laughs> end and the high in the gods on, the, on Saturday when we play Brighton well we'll wait and see what happens of course this
1: weekend's games the biggest ones will be previewed on the dugout this is uh, our Premier League show featuring former professional players and ex-wolves and West Ham winger Matt Jarvis and former Leicester and Brighton midfielder Dean Hammond will both be joining me on that show which will be available on Friday night big games this weekend including the Manchester derby so make sure you hit subscribe and that way you won't miss that but from myself Marley and Joel that is it we'll catch you again tomorrow on Football Social Daily
0: Football Social Daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk